Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Glory Glory Man United podcast. I'm your host, as always, Kyle Quinn, and joining me today is Jonas Kiever, the, the Liga expert. It's great to have you on the show, Jonas. Thank you for having me on. Pleasure as always. Yeah, I think it's the third time I've had you on, and it's been a pleasure. Um, and what a game to be talking about. Um, Ralph Raniak said last season that um, the club needed open heart surgery. Well, Dr. Ten Hag has certainly performed a successful operation. Um, what an amazing turnaround it has been, uh, even from August. Um, and what a performance away from home in the new camp against the runaway of the Liga leaders last night. Man United fans were disappointed with the draw in the end. That's how well we played. Um, and what a game it was in general. 36 shots on goal. An amazing advert for football. So how did you see it, Jonas? No, I think you, I think you summed it up very well. Two teams that um perhaps viewed it as more beneficial to be to be aggressive to be offensive especially Manchester United on the counter um I thought it was an exhilarating game because you had two footballing styles meeting up against each other obviously Eric Ten Hag being extremely uh, enamored by the way that Johan Cruyff plays obviously Camp Nou is the um the cathedral in which Johan Cruyff basically re- reinvigorated and reinvented football. So there was a lot of scenery and a lot of nice scenarios that kind of came to fruition in, in that game. And obviously two uh, footballing institutions meeting up against each other and, and, and basically delivering uh, what can only be viewed as, as a masterclass and a great advertisement for, for football from both sides. So um, I thought it was fun. And I think that those games are the games that, yeah, you could – you could basically make a tactical assumption and, and and a rundown of how the tactics went. But I think tactics kind of go out the window when you watch a game like that because because it becomes a spectacle. A little bit like the World Cup final, for example, between France and, and Argentina. I mean, I don't think a lot of people are viewing that very much tactically, more so in an entertaining fashion. So to compare it to a rather recent match, I think that this was um, it was up there. It's one of the best games I've seen uh, in the 2022-2023 season. You could also compare it to in, in September 1998. The two teams met at the new uh, met oh, yeah. at the new camp, and it was three three draw on that occasion, and it could have been six six. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was a great great spectacle, um, and probably we might see more of the same next week. I had a few friends in the crowd, and uh, there was uh, some of them were even among the home fans. Um, Lucky said that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> some of them were saying that from minute one to minute 90, that Varane and Casemiro were getting pelters and insults, as you would expect from the home crowd. But there was also obvious anxiety in the stadium when Marcus Rashford picked up the ball. Um, I just want to get your opinion. Um, We know that he's highly rated among United fans and by fans in the Premier League in general. How is he being viewed in Europe at the moment? Is he seen as one of the best forwards in, in, in the continent? Yeah, I think he is, and and rightfully so. I think that he's viewed as as a threat because Manchester United have obviously been the surprise package of the Premier League this season alongside Newcastle because a lot of people, especially with the start that Man United had in this season, I think that a lot of people viewed Manchester United as, oh yeah, they'll they might contend for a for a top four spot, but now they basically look like a lock to to nail it, and I think that that surprised a lot of people. And Marcus Rashford has always been a striker that's viewed as very hit and miss in Europe. Obviously, he's had big European nights, which um, leaves a mark in Europe. I mean, when he when he had the game against uh, Paris Saint Germain with the with the penalty, when when Solskjaer was the manager, for example, obviously his his debuts uh, against Mitchell is remembered quite fondly as well by a lot of people. So I think that he's viewed as someone who could be a catalyst and be someone that could 
um, create something out of nothing, which it did on a few occasions in this game, and which he has made a habit of doing for Manchester United. So I think he's he's highly, highly respected and, and viewed as as the talisman for Manchester United. And obviously, wearing the number ten for Man United, regardless, is is a is a badge of honor for a lot of teams. You know, viewing the number ten and the number seven of Manchester United as probably the the, the main players of of their team. So. Uh, and, I, and I tweeted about it during the match. I said it, it's becoming increasingly more difficult to argue against him being the best striker or the best attacker in the world right now. Uh, I mean, of course, as a Norwegian, I probably shouldn't say that because it's it's Holland that I should probably be going for. But but the same but at the same time, I mean, he did, he, he faced Lewandowski, and Lewandowski is, is alongside Benzema the best the best player in uh, in La Liga, I'd, I'd say at least in attacking sense. And I don't think he I don't think he was any, anything worse than Lewandowski in this game, despite that Lewandowski. At times, I thought he was incredibly good in the link-up play and obviously finding those pockets between United's midfield and defense. But but I think that Rash, what Rashford does for Man United, Lewandowski does for Barcelona. Would you say he's more dangerous than Victor Osman and uh, Harry Kane and, and Holland and Mbappe? Is that would you? I think in the Holland Mbappe Rashford argument, I think Rashford is still third. I would say. Where do you think Osman would rank among that? a very good question because he plays for a team again Napoli is a team that's more on the attacking forefront than the defensive one I mean they do have a good defense as well but I think that when you talk about Napoli you talk about their fantastic attack more so than anything and, and that's down to for example quite at Scalia and and, uh, and Osimhen having standout seasons and, and I'm a big fan of Osimhen I think that he's he's a he's a predator in the box I think he's very underrated as well with the ball at his feet so um I mean I'd I'd probably have Osimhen up there as one of the best strikers in the world right now as well. But but if you look at the informed strikers, if you look at how good Rashford is doing, it's in the way that Man United play in this moment in time. I don't think any any player should be replacing Rashford in that role that he plays. But if they could compare or or, or put him together with with for example an Osimhen, I think that a player that would be fantastic for Man United is is Dusan Vlaovic, who plays for Juventus, and obviously with Juventus not looking likely to to finish in in the Champions League spots, I mean he he sh- he would probably up for grabs uh, in the season. Um, it depends on how this ownership situation works out at Manchester United, and obviously. Um, is all down to what happens with Juventus at the end of this season, because obviously I don't know if that if the difficulty they're having is going to to be even worsened or if um or if it's bad enough if they don't qualify for the champions league so i i he's a player that's oddly not mentioned as much uh dusan vlavic so i'll um i'll mention him alongside osiman if if you want to look outside the um the possibilities of bringing in a striker in man united i would love to see rashford and and osiman play together uh that would be an awesome combination but yeah vlavic certainly belongs in that conversation um um, the 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 performance from united is even more remarkable last night when you put it into context of luke shaw playing center back against lewandowski you fred in midfield um and you had a burnley player playing for united you know that's that's it's an amazing tune that Renault that um ten Hag is getting out of the out of the squad and tactically he was he got a spot on again um yeah. and now we know from the second leg um gavi is going to be suspended pedri looks like he's going to miss the second leg through injury mm-hmm. uh lissandra martinez will come back in for united sibitzer will be available would you make united favorites now for the tie 
Oh yeah, I mean, they go away from from Camp Nou with a with a two two draw. I mean, of course, you. Despite the fact that there's no away goal rule, I, I still think that it, Manchester United are clear favorites. And and as you mentioned, you know, two of the uh, the talismans for for Barcelona are out in, in in Gavi and Pedri because Pedri is out for three to four weeks. I think that was a huge loss to the way that Barcelona play, and that the loss came as early as it did in the match as well. I think that things could have looked a lot differently if he'd been on the pitch because he is one of those absolute ma ma magicians. He, he can make something happen out of out of absolutely nothing. He he is at times just, you, you you shake your head and you wonder, I mean, how how is it even possible to be this good at football? I mean, I've seen some players at Barcelona and I've seen the likes of Messi, Iniesta. I mean, he's up there. He's up there with, with the best of the best. And obviously Messi is number one, but in that bracket right beneath Messi, I, I, I put Pedri. So... I think that's um, an incredible loss for for Barcelona, and and given those factors that you mentioned, and given the fact that the second leg is at Old Trafford, uh, I think it's pretty clear that that Manchester United are going to be favourites. And I think that for Barcelona's sake, I think that once they view this now, I mean, of course they want to win every tournament that they play, but as you mentioned, they are they are runaway favourites in in La Liga, and, and it's becoming increasingly more important for Barcelona to win because of all the levers that they exercised last summer and, and obviously with them having a team that that probably views it as less motivating to play in the second tier European competition. So I think that uh, Barcelona going as far as they can in, uh, in Europe this season in the Europa League is not necessarily what they view as um, as a necessity, but winning the La Liga and, and doing as well as they can in all other cup competitions is, uh, is second to that. Would you say Pedri is better than his manager? <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> a jury, a jury is still out on that one. But uh, oof, I mean, Xavi was a different type of type of midfielder. I mean, more of a playmaking player. But but I think that what we've seen from Pedri thus far, I, I think that he has the potential to to be better than him and and even better than Iniesta but again we're 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 basically comparing the, perhaps the two best midfielders that Spain have had alongside Busquets to Pedri and, and, and you have to look at the things that Spain did I mean they won uh, two straight European competition or European championships they won a world cup I mean it, it's difficult to put Pedri in, in comparison with those but I mean based on the based on the things that we've seen from him and based on the the ability that he has and obviously the ceiling that he sh that, that he has shown that he has I struggle to find a Spanish midfielder that, that I find outright better than him I think that if you put would you have Pedri or Iniesta I, there's a part of me that says if you put Pedri in the position that Iniesta was for those years, I don't think Barcelona or Spain become that much more worse or, or that, that they struggle because they don't have Iniesta. So um, it's a game of hypotheticals. But I, I, I think that uh, I'm just enamored by the way that Pedri plays, I guess. And he's still very young, so he, he's mm -hmm. still got a lot of development to go. So he could, he could you know, reach that level of Iniesta. He could get better, of course. But what age is he? He's 20, is that right? think he's around that age there's still i mean those two in, in barcelona's midfield and gavi and Pedro, they're so young at times i keep forgetting that that i mean how old is gavi now 17 i mean it's just it's it's crazy <laughs> 17 18 it's just crazy how young i think he just had i just he just signed a professional contract with with barcelona because he turned 18 and obviously they had to make sure that he couldn't leave on a youth contract to a different club i mean that's that's the level we're at i mean Gavi has played <laughs> played in a World Cup, and he and I mean he wasn't even 
uh, on a professional contract with, with, with Barcelona, or at least not a first team contract with Barcelona. I think, I mean, it's, it's, and they have so many others as well. I mean, Araujo is, is, is quite young still as well. Uh, Alejandro Balde is, is quite young as well. Um, who else? They have one more that I keep, Ansu Fati is still incredibly young as well. I mean, it's, ah, it's, um, it's a, it's, a, it's a young team that's going to be up there for many, many years to come. And I think that Barcelona are, they are obviously a few years behind Manchester United in terms of their players' development. But, but I think that give them two, three, four years, I think that they'll be up there with the best in the world. Yeah, it's like a conveyor belt of talent in, in Catalonia. Um, but, but that's a tradition that both clubs have, you know, always having yeah. Yeah, players that were produced in-house in the first team. Um, so that's that's something I really love about the game. Um, so just come back to the game last night. I noticed that Juan Basaka was being was very narrow, talking inside quite a lot, and he seemed quite, you know, uh, casual in his play. He wasn't sprinting; he was jogging. And he was showing he, he was standing way off Gabby and getting him a lot of space. Um, strangely enough, Wambasaka was probably better in the attacking third last night than he was <laughs> in the defensive third, which is not something you associate with Wambasaka. Was that tactical from um, Tin Hag to have Wambasaka play in the middle a lot more? Um, or do you think that was the, the player he took that upon himself? I think that's tactical. I think that uh, Barcelona's game has been very centralized. I mean, they've become more of a 1v1 kind of side uh, with Xavi, which has been kind of, quite a um strange to watch in a way because it's a huge paradox because everyone thinks that oh Xavi he's a tiki taka uh, wants to pass the ball a thousand times before getting the ball and that's kind of manager but he's quite the opposite he's very direct he likes he doesn't necessarily like to mess around too much if he can if he can see the the, the direct pass and obviously play three passes to the goal he'll he'll you know instruct his players to do that um, he, he likes to play on the counter. He's done so on, on numerous occasions. So, so he's a manager that likes things to happen. Even though, of course, his team can also play the the ball possession way because that's obviously how you're you're obviously born and bred into the Barcelona way of of playing. But um, I think the decision of, of having Juan Bissaka and obviously the the uh, the fullbacks tuck more in is because Barcelona centralized their game a lot. And 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 Gavi is not necessarily a one v one type player. He's a player that will look to link with um with the midfielders and try and, and create uh triangles you know as we've seen barcelona do on numerous occasions over the over the course of of the last decades um so, so i think it was more of a decision to try and not uh have any a one-v-one situation centralized in in the pitch so uh i think united got it quite spot on in terms of how they tried to to narrow the angles more so than anything when once gavi was on the ball I think it became more difficult when Rafinha was on the ball because obviously he's able to do both. So it's difficult to necessarily take him out of the game. And I think that he he's starting to really show how good he is for Barcelona. He's had a couple of games now where he's been good and you saw that he was absolutely livid when he was taken off the pitch because he was in, in, in flow, he was in his groove. So that's one of those substitutions that that the Barcelona fans are sort of shaking their heads at now post-game and, and, and obviously the day after because he had the, he had the ability to cause trouble for Manchester United. So... Um, so yeah, I, I, I viewed, there's a few things and few selections from Xavi that, that, you know, today has kind of been viewed as sort of odd, especially also not starting Andreas Christensen in defense and obviously having Marcos Alonso play, uh, alongside Julius Conde in, in, in that defense, because Christensen has, has arguably been their best defender this season. 
Yeah, it was a bit strange to take off the the winger who who got the equaliser, um, and he was extremely unhappy about it. Um, I thought Malasia should have got closer to him and not allowed him to get that crossing, and that ended up in the back of the net. And I thought Fred's marking of Alonso was pretty poor as well. So that summed up that sums up Fred. Uh, the the poor the poor marking from the corner which allows Alonso's goal and then the 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 assist for Rashford which was a really good pass that's chance on the Fred in general and in that game very 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 mixed bag you know um yeah so Alonso I didn't realize this that his father had passed away and he was very emotional when he scored last night so I suppose from that point of view I was never happy to see people score against United but I suppose I can't take that away from him. No, it's it's uh, it's been a bit of a sad moment for him, obviously in in Spain, and obviously his father is is played for you know Barcelona. I believe he had a stint at um, at Real Madrid as well. I mean, he's he, he comes from a footballing family. I mean, his his father was part of those old Real Madrid teams that that won uh, a lot of trophies in the fifties and sixties. His father was obviously a player, and I believe he played for Spain. And I think there are actually three generations of Spanish internationals. So. His father passing away has been uh, mentioned quite a bit in Spain. I mean, he, his father is viewed as a bona fide legend to, to say, but but um, it's been a topic. And and having him play this match obviously would would all would obviously regardless been quite emotional for him. And him getting a goal and obviously pointing to the sky and obviously dedicating the goal to his father is is a touching moment regardless. So I, I think that. If anyone wants to score for Barcelona and, and for the fans to sort of, you know, feel that someone really deserved that, um, I think it was him, obviously. But I, I, I think that he he underlines that there's a little bit lack of depth in in that Barcelona defense. Um, and I think it's it's really frustrating to view that a player like Andreas Christensen didn't start. I have to go back to that because Christensen has been tremendous for Barcelona as of late and I think that of all the, the, the players that they picked up he looks like the the real coup because obviously they got him from a free transfer from Chelsea uh and if you compare the two uh, defenders that left Chelsea last summer I mean you have Antonio Rudiger who plays for for Real Madrid and you have Andreas Christensen of Barcelona I think that um a lot of people viewed it as a bigger win for for Real Madrid to get Rudiger than, than for uh, Barcelona to get Christensen but it's become rather the opposite because Rudiger struggled to really get into that, that Real Madrid side. And when he when he has played for Real Madrid, he struggled at times, whereas Christensen has just slotted in seamlessly. So I don't know if that's um, the credit of the manager, the credit of the, the way that the teams play, or if it's credit to, to the players themselves for basically getting themselves more ushered into the side as quickly as they have. So, so I think that, you know, not playing Christensen... In, in one of those games of the season, kind of um, either either Xavi doesn't view this tournament as that important or there's an injury to Christensen that we don't know about um, or it just isn't, you, you cannot make a defense for not playing him in these types of games. Yeah, it's amazing the turnaround from Christensen because when he was at Chelsea, I don't think many fans in England really thought he was that impressive. Um, so for him to be part of a, a back four that's only conceded seven league goals this season is really, really good and not something we would have expected. And, un and it is unusual that he didn't play last night. Um, I would say, the, given all the, the, the levers that Barca pulled, like you mentioned, um, the Europa League is probably not that lucrative for Barcelona um, and financially. Um, obviously, they probably like to, they like to win all trophies that they're, that they're taking part in, but... 
uh, financially it isn't isn't looking to any of the the big clubs the the Europa League. No. So I, I don't think you always want to win these glamour ties, but it. it Take United, for example, um, we have so many games and such a thin squad with injuries and suspensions. There's no way we're going to be able to compete on four fronts. So if we went out of a tournament, it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world because it'd free up some midweeks. Um, and this, maybe it's the same for Barcelona. I don't think there is a League Cup in, in Spain. Isn't that right? So no, it's not quite the same. No, no they, they they play the Super Cup uh, in Spain. They obviously would in England. You have the Community Shield, um, which is one match. In in Spain, you now have the Supercopa de España, which they actually play in Saudi Arabia. So um, they take four teams and they place them in Saudi Arabia. Obviously, the league winner, the cup winner, and then they have either the, the cup finalist and the second place in the league, and they all go and play this little two how is it how many matches is there there's semi two semifinals and obviously a final so but in barcelona they won the super cup so um that's the closest thing you come to a to a league cup i guess in in spain yeah i noticed that barcelona beat uh real madrid 3-1 in saudi arabia is that right so, yeah yeah that's right that's right and that makes united's performance last night even more impressive like some people might say that barcelona playing substandard opposition you know, most weeks uh, in comparison to the <laughs> the top six in the Premier League, but they beat Real Madrid three one. So clearly, they they are a good side, and you know, uh, United have to get credit for their performance last night. Um, but clearly, you, you you'll know more than me. Would you say that most teams in in the league are not as good as Man United? I think that's a fair fair assessment. It's it's a fair assessment. I, I think that the the assessment that that's more interesting here is how Barcelona are becoming a bit of a Jekyll and Hyde because as soon as they play in cup competitions, they leak goals. I mean, they they concede so many goals. I mean, they, they conceded three goals against Intercity, who was a lower league side in in the cup. Uh, they obviously ended up winning that match for three, but still, they conceded twice or two goals in a four two. De- win over Victoria Pilsen from from the Czech Republic. They conceded, I mean, three or four goals against both Inter and and Bayern Munich. Um, And they've only conceded more than uh, than one goal on one occasion in La Liga this season, which was the 3-1 defeat to, uh, to Real Madrid of all teams. With the exception of that match in the league, they haven't conceded more than one goal a game. Uh, which is just remarkable. And if you look at the way that they've defended and you look at at their defensive numbers, I mean, they're still in the single digits of goals conceded this season, I believe. So they're they're having a a sensational season in terms of defending in La Liga, whereas in in Europe and and in cup competitions, they they, they cannot keep a, a closed shop. So... It's it's weird. It's really weird because I don't think I've ever seen a team that's that different in terms of the, just defending uh, when they're in the league and when they're playing cup competitions. And and to go back to your question uh, or your assessment rather of teams in in La Liga, no, I, I think that this season, if if I'm going to be brutally honest, I think that there might be obviously Real Madrid, Barcelona are are as good as Manchester United, if not better. Um, Real Sociedad has had a really good season, really impressive season, and they're racking up wins like crazy. But I'd pick Man United over them. Um, Atletico Madrid have had a horrible season. They're 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 really struggling as opposed to what they should be because they should be top three and maybe challenging for the title. You know, 
out of out of the gate, and they just haven't. Um, Sevilla has had a, a horrible season. Absolutely, they won three 0 last night against PSV, obviously, and and obviously Sevilla are a team that basically they just seem to be destined to win the Europa League whenever they play it. Uh, but they've had a, they've been in the relegation spots for for parts of the season. Um, they obviously they're safe now, and and then I, th- I think that they'll be able to climb the table. Athletic Club has been all right. I mean, they're a little bit hit and miss. Uh, Real Betis the same. So and Rayo Vallecano has obviously been the big the big surprise package in the Liga, which is why Antonio Irraola, their manager, has been linked with with uh, a move to Leeds, for example. So no, I, I I'd pick. Barcelona and Real Madrid would be teams that I could defend as better or equal to Manchester United. And obviously, looking at the game last night, I think it became pretty clear that that um, I thought Manchester United deserved to win that match. And and to have uh, to have a team go to Camp Nou and you say that they are better than Barcelona, that doesn't happen too often. Does not happen too often. So um, I think that that should be the feather in the cap of of, uh, of Man United of the development that they've done. And obviously of, of Eric Ten Hag and, and uh, the magic that he's been able to produce with Manchester United because it's, I, I cannot remember, with the exception of Mourinho at times, maybe f- short periods of time under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer, I cannot remember seeing a Manchester United side this good post Alex Ferguson. Yeah, absolutely. And there's been times where United have got big results uh, post-Ferguson, but this we're seeing consistency now uh, from this manager. Um, and you mentioned the Sociedad there. United beat them away from home and lost at Old Trafford to uh, a questionable penalty decision. Um, and that's yeah. why we're playing Barcelona in the first place. Um, yeah. you know. Um, but yeah, it's been a magnificent turnaround uh, from United. Um, so just coming back to... Uh, tactics from last night. Bruno Fernandes seemed as if he was being sacrificed to keep an eye on Jordi Alba coming forward. Like he wasn't, he wasn't involved in his usual role at number ten for United. He's a bit playing. Uh, I remember over a decade ago, Wayne Rooney been using this type of role to keep uh, track of. I think it was Dani Alves or whoever the fullback was. But um, Bruno was sacrificed. Was Zem- Zembrota, if I'm correct, I think it was Zembrota actually, which he kept uh, he kept reviewing as he came uh, high up the pitch. At least in at least in one of those matches at Old Trafford, I think it was one of the semifinals in 07-08. I think he kept a close eye on Zembrota because he was extremely offensive. And then obviously they tried to do the same thing in the Champions League final the year after, but that was when Alves had had arrived at Barcelona, and, and I think that he struggled with that, if I'm not mistaken. Someone can correct me on that, but I, I remember him following Zambrotta for a lot of that uh, leg at Old Trafford, at least. Yeah, I think you're right. But in the final in 09, I think Rooney's role was to stop um, Donny Alves getting forward, yeah. if I remember correctly. Yeah. Um, but yeah, under, under Ferguson, United would have went to the new Camp or the Bernabeu, and you know, tried to get a draw, tried to keep a clean sheet, keep it tight. But but Ten Hag went for the win last night. And even in his MUTV interview before the game, Stuart Gardner asked him, "Are you going to you know try to sneak a win?" And he said, "I'm not trying to sneak a win. I'm going here to win the game." You know, I really love that attitude uh, from the manager. Um, so it's it's great to see. But it's um, changed a bit, though. I mean, it's changed a lot because the away goal rule doesn't apply anymore. 
that's one of those things, things that I think that has made made football a lot more fun because teams they don't go fearful to to play away matches or I mean even fearful of playing home matches because what you usually see are two teams that just don't really want to give the other team an edge because obviously one goal means as much as it does. So what you now have is basically two teams playing a football match and one time we play at your ground and the different uh, the next time we play at our ground. So I mean it's it's in a way I. I was one of the, I was one of the defenders of the away goal rule. I always thought it was kind of fun because it, it became so tactical, but it became obviously so uh, tedious to watch as well. There would be so many matches that were so extremely te- at times you, did, you, you didn't necessarily need to to watch the first leg because you knew there wouldn't be that many goals. But now you see that when when teams don't have to think about the away goal rule, it becomes more topsy turvy, which I think is again of the benefit of the game. Yeah, it seems as if we are seeing better matches now across the two legs. Now the way the way a goal rule is being cancelled, um, but from a, a purely selfish point of view, I wish it did apply now because we'd have a huge advantage. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there's been a long held belief by fans of English teams that Barcelona and Real Madrid get favourable decisions by the officials in European competitions. Um, we can go back to. Chelsea not not getting about four penalties against Barcelona in 09. Um, that was a Norwegian sending... referee, by the way. That was a Norwegian yeah, referee. that's right. <laughs> the Nani sending off against Real Madrid, which is controversial. We had Van Persie being sent off for Arsenal in the new Camp uh, just for mm-hmm. kicking the ball away in the second yellow. We've had probably other examples that I, I can't think of. Um, and last night, we, we kind of seen, seen it again. With Jules Koundé clearly brings down Rashford just outside the area. And it's a it's a red card all day long, and you never see Ten Hag complaining about the officials. But he was going berserk last night, and even in his post match interview, he brought it up. Um, why did the VAR not intervene in that situation? Didn't see a clear and obvious error. Apparently, I don't know. I, I personally, I was like when I saw the, the saw, saw the challenge, I was like, oh, that's a yeah, that's a penalty. Uh, and 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 I was quite certain that if the referee didn't see it i mean i I think a lot of referees actually lean a little bit on var i don't know i i've it's just an assumption that i have that at times that they they don't blow the whistle because oh they think oh well fine if i did an error here i'll get a call on 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 var and i'll go out and view it and and obviously i'll I'll correct my my flaw but perhaps the var didn't see it as clear and obvious i mean and if the referee is is in doubt then he obviously won't blow his whistle because he's in doubt um, and if and if obviously he blows his whistle and the decision is wrong, but it's not clear and obvious, VAR will not intervene. So I think the way that VAR is practiced, I I usually come. I, it's a horrible thing to say, I guess, but I'm, I'll say it regardless. I, I kind of view VAR as as communism. I think it's a good idea, but I just think it's practiced horribly. I don't think we've seen how it should be practiced in any way, shape, or form. So um, that's basically that's basically how I view VAR, and, and and I think that Barcelona as well they were they were furious because they thought they should have a penalty for a handball from Fred, which I thought was a lot softer than than obviously the the the, um, the foul from Kunde on on Rashford. So um, I think it's I think it's a, it's a strange one. It's a, it's a really strange one, and I think that um the the way var is practiced there's no streamline to it, it it's it, it's there's no objective manner of how to practice var and, and i think that uh one of the things that that i absolutely love is if uh uefa start doing what they do in conmebol which is obviously the south american uh federation they publish every single var call on social or on youtube 
they have basically a, a, a page whenever they pick Copa Libertadores and, and they have a VAR decision that they have to make. They publish the whole conversation. It's out there. It's even it, it's texted. You can see exactly why did they decide to, to blow the whistle? Why did they decide not to? What is the, the referee looking at? And this comes obviously post-match. After the match is over, you can go to, to YouTube and obviously an hour or two after. They publish the whole thing. And I've and I said on numerous occasions, just put it out there. I mean, what is there to hide? I mean, is is there is there something to hide? I should say. I mean, where where is the transparency? So I think that I think that if if uh, they obviously they took a page out of South America's book by having this spray where they place the walls and where they place obviously the the, the point of where you should take a set piece, steal this from South America as well. Publish the whole thing online. I, I just don't see why there shouldn't be a transparency thing here when when there's a VAR call or, or a lack thereof. Yeah, I, th- I do think that's a good idea. Uh, at the moment in the Premier League, it is absolutely farcical. Um, last weekend was a particularly bad one uh, for decisions. Um, how, are they experiencing the same same difficulties in La Liga? Because apart from the odd decision here and there, like last night, I thought that in UEFA competitions, I think the, the VAR has managed a lot better. Um, how has it been in La Liga? A bit of the same, I guess. I mean, it, it kind of depends a little bit. I mean, it depends. It's more, I should say, it's more referee based. I mean, you you know which referees would, are are kind of you know they like to use VAR and they kind of lean a little bit on VAR, and you know that there's also the referees that just regardless if they go out there's especially one i won't mention his name but there's one referee that you know when he goes out to look at the screen he's not going to change his decision never he he, he kind of lives and dies by his decisions but he gets told you should go out there and view it he'll go out there and view it and he goes nah I, I was i was right all along um and it, he's, he's quite a funny referee it's, it's not the one that everyone keeps thinking of it's not mateo laos which is like the the quintessential spanish referee but but it's very it, it's very dependent on which referee it is, and and I think that the big um, the big fallacy of, of VAR is is basically the the amount of time you have to wait. There's a lot of waiting with VAR, and I think that that's a lot of where football, whether it's in Spain, Italy, England, wherever it is, they, they need to figure out a way to make it more automatical and and uh or automatic i said automatic is not a word i believe but automatic um and, and i think that there needs to be a time limit on how long you can actually use var i mean if, if it's not if it's not corrected within a certain amount of time the original decision just should just stand whether you've given a goal whether you've shown someone a straight red whatever it is you cannot have people wait for a minute two three because they're looking at this uh, with with such a uh, i don't know a magnifying glass i should say i mean it's it's just it becomes farcical as you said and and that's basically one of those things that annoy me the most with var because the idea of it is so good and it provides such a, a beautiful aspect to the game and of getting it right i mean for example I'm, i might be i might be talking about a sensitive subject here but but france would not go to the world cup on uh against ireland if you had var because they pick up the, the theory on handball i mean it, it's that simple so and, and that is basically fact i mean that's a, an objective view of it um but but when you have those millimeter sort of things that we all have to look at it i'm just kind of it, it falls by the wayside for me when, when it's not quicker than it is when you have to wait for a minute two three for the game to be resumed because they have to look at things all the time so 
it's uh, one of the things that annoy me the most about modern football, I guess. You're bringing up bad memories now by mentioning all Yeah, I'm sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, last weekend in the Premier League, we had a situation where the VAR said that he forgot to draw the lines and another game, they drew the lines along the wrong defender. And you're like, how, how, how is this possible? One of the VARs was Lee Mason, an experienced referee who's oh, yeah. now retired yeah. and, and he's working. Mm-hmm. The, and so, I think several of the VARs from last weekend have now been suspended. Um, it's just incredible blunders. That's happened in Spain it. as well. That's happened in Spain as well, actually, where they suspend VAR or they actually they suspend the referees and they place them on VAR. That's actually happened on a few occasions where a referee has done, for example, you had Mateo Laos, which I mentioned earlier, who was giving out bookings left, right and center a match ago. I don't remember which match it was, but it was so many bookings, like a tremendous amount of bookings. And and upon review, I, I believe he was he was suspended for or I was not play. I shouldn't say suspended because I didn't. No, we are suspending him. No, they just didn't have him uh, officiate a match the following weekend, but he was on VAR. So that actually has happened in Spain as well. Uh, I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, uh, that it's, it's <laughs> happening elsewhere. It's, it's not good for the game, but it, at least it shows that um, it's not just the English uh, officials that are, are having trouble. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I really don't know what the answer is. How, how do we improve the situation? Uh, I, I don't know, um, because... No, I've said that, you know, maybe the Premier League, they, they import the, the best coaches, the best players. Um, why can't they import the best referees? But, I mean, if referees are having issues in other countries as well, then it's it might necessarily solve the problem. Um, but uh, I just, you just have to hope that it gets better. In my opinion, the current crop of Premier League referees are worse than the the ones from ten years ago and twenty years ago, and um, it's it's not a good standard in my opinion. But uh, I'll, I'll come on to what as you always do the the, the player ratings from from United um, and last night I've, I've written them down so we can do them very quickly. Um, De Gea seven, Wan Bissaka uh, a, a five, Varane seven, Shaw seven, Malasia six, Casemiro eight, Fred six, mm-hmm. Bruno Fernandez five, Rashford eight. Uh, Vikers a six and Sancho a five and Tin Hag uh, gets a nine for me. Um, yeah, so Rashford and Casemiro probably the best performers uh, in my opinion. Um, and and Shaw did excellently well. Um, he's playing against one of the best strikers in Europe and in a position that he's only had about five games worth of experience in. Um, amazing, isn't it? How well Luke Shaw has done at centre back. Yeah, I think that he's he's becoming the story of the season for Manchester United uh, because, uh, I mean, he rarely plays a bad match in general now. I mean, there, there's, you know, I mean, how to compare him? I think that he, in a way, not with the, with the amount of goals and assists and so forth, but he's getting there as well. I think that he's a little bit like Dennis Irving now. I mean, he... he there's no, there's never a bad match. He doesn't have a clearly a horrible match. He'll have matches where he's not necessarily the best player on the pitch, but he's solid. And that's like one of the things that I think that uh, really underlines how good a fullback is, where you just, you're not necessarily the player of the game every single game. You'll have a, you have games where you are the player of the game or, or the man of the match rather, but you're never really the bad you're not the one that teams single out as the as the weak point of a team, and that really outlines how good a center or a fullback is, I should say. And and the only one that I remember that was like that was that was Dennis Irving at Manchester United because 
Evra would at times would be would be targeted. Uh, Gabriel Heinz would be targeted a lot because he was so hot headed. Uh, and who else has played fullback in Man United at left? I mean, you had you'd had Alex Butner, you'd had uh, Alex Tellers, you'd had a lot of a lot of different players who's, who's played that position. But but from to my knowledge and from what I remember now, and obviously someone can correct me. I don't remember a fullback that's just been as solid as as Luke Shaw since Dennis Irvin, at least for this period in time. And, and if you just look at the season, and I think that the player that's brought that out of him is, is obviously Malasia, and obviously Ten Hag was challenged him. And, and I think that kind of proves how mentally strong Luke Shaw is, uh, that he's been able to come back from it and, and is becoming one of the best players that Manchester United has and, and has become a leader in his own right. And when you're able to basically just switch position the way that he's doing as well, Tremendous, absolutely fantastic. So I think that if you're going to go to a vote for a player of the season as of right now, I think that I probably have Casemiro as number one, but I think that Luke Shaw might be number two. Yeah, um, amazing that he can even against Leeds, he he played both positions and he did it. And I, and I didn't well. forget Rashford, by the way. I did not forget Rashford. I just say because someone will say, "Oh, where's Rashford?" I did not forget him. I just think that Luke Shaw's season is more impressive because we've been expecting this from Rashford. We haven't been expecting this from Shaw. I'm sorry to interrupt. I just have to put that in there. No problem. Um, yeah, uh, Luke, the problem is when Luke Shaw plays centre-back, as good as he's been and in big games against like the City and Barcelona, you miss his, uh, you know, his, his, his offensiveness down the left-hand yeah. side. His crossing is immaculate and we really miss that. Um, uh, when he was switched out to the left against Leeds when we were struggling, he in Sabitzer uh, switched the play out to him. Lovely touch and control and lovely ball into Rashford who got the header. Um, so Malassia isn't quite as good going forward as Shaw, but uh, sometimes it's a needs must because if Mart Martinez isn't available, then uh, Ten Hag wants to have a left-footed centre-back uh, and Shaw is the chosen one in that aspect. So yeah, he's doing uh, really well this season. Um, it's going to be very competitive for the, the United Player of the Year. Uh, normally it's obvious who's going to win, De Gea, um, yeah. but uh, <laughs> this time it's going to be different. Yeah, um, yeah so... Jane Sancho's back in the team now. He's doing. He scored on uh, against Leeds in the home game. He's doing. He's doing all right. Just not uh, spectacularly well at the moment. But you have to give him time. Um, Garnacho is obviously getting more of the headlines when when he comes onto the pitch. He's kind of more of an end, producing more of an end product than Jane uh, Sancho at the moment. Um, so, what 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 do you think? In your opinion, do you think Ten Hag should start Garnacho or persist with Sancho for the moment? No, I think that I think you should uh, rotate them. Obviously, they, they play in positions where you're judged based upon uh, your end product for the most part. And and I think that if Garnacho is the one that delivers, then he should play. And if Sancho delivers, then he should play. And and but I think that you need to all obviously be patient with with, with Jaden Sancho because we don't know 100 percent what's what has happened. Uh, we can only make assumptions and i don't think that's fair to him uh but there's been things obviously that's happened in his life that has made him uh need in need of a rest and in need of being away from football for a while so i think that he needs to be given a little bit more time i, I think it's um beautiful that he's been given chances in big matches such as this one because obviously um he's a, he's a player that, that benefits from being given the love and the, the, the adulation from from his manager and i think that 
I think that if anything, Ten Hag is incredibly good at reading people and that he understands what the players need and understands how to push their buttons and one day, which players need to feel the love and which players need to feel challenged. Um, and I think that he gains a lot of respect when he stood up to Cristiano Ronaldo. So, so I think that um, I think that Jaden Sancho, as long as he delivers, should play. But obviously, if he doesn't play, I, I also think it, it 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 has to come down to what he, what he is feeling at this moment in time. Because I think that the, one of the best, I mean, one of the players with the highest potential in that Man United side right now is Jaden Sancho, and, and I think that that's why you should be giving him time. Because if he clicks on all cylinders, phew, that Man United attack is, is is going to be flying. It's going to be flying more than it is right now, and it and it is flying right now. Yeah, and you, you mentioned uh, Dennis Irwin there. I think he had one bad game in ten years, uh, so yeah, he was incredibly in- consistent. Um, yeah. Luke, well, I do take your point about Luke Shaw. He's 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 very con- consistent this season. Um, I think his one bad game was against Bakri Saka uh, at the Emirates. Uh, he he struggled in that game. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. He did. Yeah, he did. Yeah. Um, he was, See, I had, he was to think, I had to think of that. I had to think. I, I I couldn't think of any bad game he'd had this season. But yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. Yeah, he showed Saka too much respect. He was backing off too much, not getting close enough. Um, sometimes Shaw does that um, when he's playing fullback. But, uh, um, you know, he's still very, very good as a defender and excellent going forward, Luke Shaw. So uh, long may it continue. Um, so... It's been fantastic to have you on the show, uh, Jonas, once again. Um, anytime United are playing the league opposition, I'm always sure to have you on. <laughs> no, I'm happy. I'm happy to be uh, to be on and I'm happy to be sharing uh, both. I mean, I obviously follow Manchester United quite a bit and, uh, and I follow Spanish football perhaps even more. So it's good to be able to combine the two. And, and obviously now it's uh, just to, I'm not going to take over anything but i think one of the things that'll be interesting to follow this week for manchester united fans is obviously their ownership situation i think that's one of the things that i'm trying to to follow as much as anything right now because that is this is it this is when when they have to decide which way they're going i mean it's it's going to be fascinating because i think you'll see a lot of tribalism start now i think you'll see a lot of fan groups of people wanting one thing and people wanting another thing really really etching out uh the way in which Manchester United fandom will be going in, in, in the next couple of years, maybe even decades. So um, I have to point that out because we haven't mentioned that. And I really wanted to to point that out, considering the fact that that's it's something that I've been working a little bit on, obviously, to find out a little bit more about uh, about that situation. So um, but I, and anyways, I mean, it's it's good to not have to speak about it as much. So I've been enjoying having a footballing conversation, but but mentioning that there's a, a huge shift happening at Manchester United should also be, be, be mentioned considering the fact that you're probably very interested in it and, and I've been working a lot with it as of late. So, so yeah, there's that as well. Well, I have to say that I'm deeply uncomfortable with United being state-owned, um, especially given that the state that's been linked with United also owns PSG. Um, surely there would be a conflict of interest there if the two teams met in European competition. This just doesn't sit well with me. Not according to themselves. I have to, I, I, considering the fact that I wrote the story here in Norway, and I think it was mentioned elsewhere before, but you know, I, I actually had it confirmed from uh, QIA, which is obviously the the sovereign fund of of, uh, of Qatar. I, I did actually uh, uh, speak with them yesterday, uh, which would have been yeah Thursday, um, and they really wanted to underline the fact that they and they are not a or. Um, 
QSI, which owns PSG, is not a subsidiary of them. Uh, they are their own entity. So I don't know if that is in order to sort of try and make sure that they uh, underline something prior to bidding for Manchester United. Uh, they didn't want to comment on, on those rumors, uh, which I also asked them about. Um, but they're very keen to make sure that, that QIA and QSI are viewed in, in different manner. And, and considering the fact that they state that uh, QS, QSI is their own separate entity, I think they at least wanted to suggest that, that uh, QSI is not state-owned. Um, but yeah, it depends on how you view it, considering the fact that the chairman of QSI is, is also on the board of QIA. There are... Uh, Obvious links, <laughs> obvious links there, which uh, should regardless provide a conflict of interest between Manchester United and Paris Saint-Germain if, uh, if that was to happen. It's like saying that uh, Salzburg and Leipzig are not owned by the same people, you know, <laughs> yeah. not buying it. <laughs> In a way, you're, you're, you're right about that. But anyways, I could provide a little bit of uh, intel, I guess, onto what I've been working on. Yeah, um, like the expectation is now that we will have Qatari owner, owners. Um, is <laughs> would you say that Jim Radcliffe is out of the running now, or is he still in the running? And this link to Elian uh, Musk is is, that, is there any truth behind that? I haven't I haven't checked. I've been obviously working more on the Qatar side of things to try and figure out more on, on that part of it because obviously everyone is is up in arms when once you mention Qatar and and and, and football because of the World Cup. But uh, reading what I've been reading, obviously, which I think a lot of other people have been reading, it it looks like uh, Jim Ratcliffe has has decided that he's really going to go for this. Um, so it'll be interesting because I think a lot of people will view this as good versus evil. And then a lot of people will view this as poor versus rich. Uh, I think that a lot of people have a, a an assumption that Jim Radcliffe is is that much poorer than than the Qatar state, which might be true. And then a lot of people are viewing this as Jim Radcliffe being good and Qatar being evil. So I, I think that the, the semantics of all of this and the way that it just creates a sense of tribalism within uh, a fan base is 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 oddly fascinating because you'd think that the end game here would be that everyone would like for Manchester United to win. But it also seems like people have different ways of viewing the ethical side of winning, which um, I find really fascinating. I think it's 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 incredibly interesting to be. And as you mentioned yourself, that you, you couldn't bear the thought of, of Manchester United being state-owned, which I completely understand, which is a very fair point. Uh, and then I also see the people that are commenting saying that I don't really care who owns the club as long as they provide me with something to be happy about at the weekend. That's all that I care about. You know, it could be, you know, a dictator or whatever for what I care as long as my team wins, which I in a way also understand. Um, so, I, I mean, I'm on I'm a little bit I think I lean towards your side of things. Um, but at the same time, I, I think it's interesting to view how sort of militant, I suppose, these two sides are becoming. Um, I'm not militant to either side. I just, I, I just view it in a way I was raised about how football is, about competitiveness, about how everything is, should be uh, decided on the pitch and obviously under fair grounds. I think that a Jim Ratcliffe-owned Manchester United seems to be what is closer to that but and then again what seems to be is not always the case which has to be people has to be reminded of 
I don't think it's quite good versus evil. I mean, Jim, Jim Radcliffe is not whiter than white. Um, he has environmentalists who are deeply unhappy with his uh, chemical yeah. industry. Yeah, um, exactly. Um, but I prob- there's no such thing really as a a billionaire with a moral compass. Um, <laughs> just, <laughs> so we just have to. Uh, and I just hoping for the the least worst option. Um, I do I do have issues with dictatorships owning my club and who have really poor human rights records. Um, that's just my opinion. I think there's kind of a a split uh, demographically with the fan base. I think the younger fans just don't care about moral compasses and want to see just the best players in the world coming to Manchester United. Um, whereas the older fans, I think, uh, care more about the soul of the football club and, you know, don't want us to be state owned by a dictatorship and I want I would be fair prefer like a billionaire that's from Manchester who 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 probably um is a supporter of the club and wants to wants the best for the club uh, potentially. Um that probably sits better with the older fans. Um I might that might be a massive generalization, but that's the way no, I'm reading but, it but- online. I agree. I agree. And I also think it's it's also local lo- people that view themselves as local fans uh, and people from the UK, people from Scandinavia, which is rather close to the UK. I think a lot of them as well has the sense that they'd like for have someone who's local, who's one of their own, to put it like that. Whereas I think that international fans, uh, again, huge generalization because there's a lot of people that don't think this way. But I, I think that a lot of people in different countries view it as more... I'm not saying that they, they don't care, but I think that for them it's a, a bit of the same regardless who owns the club as long as the club wins. But I'm not saying that that means that they support uh, a regime to take over the club and that they want that to happen. But I think a lot of them view it as who is the richer one, who is going to be able to provide Manchester United with the most richest, who is going to be pr- able to provide Manchester United with the nicest signings, with, uh, with the best stadium, with the best training facilities. Um, and they don't care... I don't, I'm not saying that they don't care, but they don't think too much into who does it and what lies behind the riches that they have, uh, which I th- which I completely understand. I, I, I don't view that as necessarily 100% a wrong aspect to have of this. But I, but again, as you as you alluded to there, I think that the older, if you, if you can call it basically those that have grown up with being Manchester United fans in the 80s, 90s and so forth, they have more of this romantic view of how things should be done because it was the united way and all that sort of thing but you got to remember that a lot of people like that that are man united fans today the younger fans they they grew up in the tail end of of sir alex ferguson's reign at manchester united a lot of them haven't experienced a lot of the things that the old i'm i'm, I'm turning 31 this summer i was there for a lot of that run i was there you know i remember i still remember 99 i still remember uh winning man united winning three in a row on two separate occasions there's a lot of people that were too young to remember that and they want to remember that they want to have those memories and they view it as more possible with a, a filthy rich owner from a state that is deplorable in in their human rights records more so than an environmentalist that might have a deplorable record in terms of uh maintaining the environment but is local and has Again, good intentions because he is a lifelong fan, much like a lot of other supporters from that region is. So um, it's just oddly fascinating to view how much this is creating a militant fan base on both sides. Um, so I'm, I'm one of those people that I guess that um, I just like to see a spectacle and, and it's becoming one and it's becoming a spectacle which 
has already has already surpassed what we saw when Chelsea were sold because that again there was a Saudi Arabian uh, businessman that wanted to get in uh, and view and and bid from you had the Ricketts family that uh, had a history of of being uh, anti-Islam for example that was basically ushered out of the bidding because that that came to um, that came to uh, I mean it became public knowledge that that had happened um, but here we have states and we have uh hedge funds you have lifelong fans you have it, it's yeah it's becoming a all we're lacking now is conor mcgregor to bid again that'll be fun hey if he states again that he wants to be part of this that's the only thing lacking <laughs> i don't think he quite has the funds to to be banned a, a Premier league football club <laughs> I, well, he, well, he said he wanted to buy chelsea he said he wanted to buy chelsea i remember he was actually out there and 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 was actually campaigning a little bit for buying Chelsea. So I'm just waiting for him to now try and buy Manchester United as well. That would be fun. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm sure he'll do it for the publicity, but um, I think yeah. he's more of a millionaire than a billionaire. Um, yeah, yeah. I, the thing is, I don't think United really need a sugar daddy, uh, for want of a better phrase. Um, if, if the club's revenue was just spent uh, appropriately, then we would we would have we'd be have loads of funds for for transfers every summer, um, and you know, uh, doing work to the stadium on the training ground. We don't need to have you know state ownership to be successful. Um, it's it's one of the most profitable football clubs in the world, so we it's not necessary. Um, so someone like Radcliffe coming in with obviously you know mediocre funds compared to guitar would be. No, it wouldn't see us being poor. Uh, let's put it that way. You know, we would would be in the possibly the same position we are now, except the without the the constant dividends and and debt repayments. And um, no, I agree. But, I agree. But it'd be interesting. I mean, if if you, what you alluded to earlier was correct, I mean, if because it's been stated that that Redcliffe might have to look to partner up with someone, it'd be interesting to see who he'd end up if he has to do that. Um, if his obsession with owning Manchester United is as big as being reported, um, it'd be interesting to see just you know freeballing a little bit here and thought processes. Considering the fact that Elon Musk has also said that he'd like to, or that if he's going to own a football club, it'd be Manchester United. It'd be interesting if actually he throws his name into that hat because obviously he also has a lot of connections to the Middle East. He was there for the World Cup final. Um, it'd be interesting. I think, again, I think that the big spectacle now, Manchester United, are, are, they're fun to watch on the pitch, but I think they'll even be, they'll be even more fun to watch outside um, these these next couple of weeks and, uh, and until this ownership situation is cleared. Yeah, Elian Musk was at the Super Bowl with Rupert Murdoch. He's not a popular man. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. There you and go. He's tried to buy, he tried to buy the club in 1999. Yeah, um, he's guy B. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, because of the conflict of interest, it was blocked, I think, by the Premier League. Um, because yeah. you can't have a broadcaster owning one of the clubs, you know, that wouldn't wouldn't sit well. That happened that happened in France, actually. Uh, and considering we we've spoken about Qatar, it was actually PSG, I believe, that they were owned by <laughs> by Canal Plus in uh in France, if I don't remember because they tried to buy Ronaldo, obviously the old Brazilian Ronaldo. Um because they were yeah, it's a just because we're we're going full circle with this this whole thing, I had to mention that one as well. well I do have to say that you know uh, Newcastle fan to some probably the among the best fans in Britain, um, they've been starved of success. It's been like a famine at St James's Park since basically the nineteen fifties. So, and if I could be happy for another group of fans uh, to see success, it would be them. 
Um, but the fact that it's come about through again controversial state ownership is uh, mm-hmm. unfortunate. But I can understand any Newcastle fan who doesn't care about that because finally they've they've got rid of Mike Ashley. They're now going to be a successful uh, football club. Probably they're going to probably going to win trophies. Oh, hopefully not next week. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't blame a certain section of Newcastle fans for not caring who the how their owner has, what their their owner's human rights record is in their home country, um, because they've been starred of success for so long. So I can understand that that, that point of view. I can as well. I mean, I, 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 yeah, I understand that point of view, and I understand that wanting to see your team succeed, you know, at times it goes beyond common sense. And I'm not saying that it, it that it does in this instant in any way, shape, or form. But I think that uh, for his fan section, such as, for example, Newcastle, for when Chelsea obviously they were struggling, uh, they they just made it into the Champions League that year uh, when Roman Abramovich bought them. Uh, and they were looking, you know, at a bankruptcy. I, I understand the, the the necessity and the need for uh, for success and and wanting. As Manchester City is a great example of this. They're they're a fantastic example of this. I mean, they were in the shadows of Manchester United for decades. I mean, they were when United won the Champions League in Camp No, they were basically fighting for existence. You know, it's I completely understand it, but I think that there. There's a moral compass in all this as well that I think that a lot of people are actually, well, they're, they're being faced with it, if, if anything. They, they need to sort of decide their own moral compass in one way. But saying that this is correct and this is good and this is, yeah, I, I don't care if it's Qatar or, you know, regardless. I mean, you have Visit Rwanda, for example, on the on the shirts of, of, uh, of Arsenal. I... I it doesn't. I don't see one thing as good and one thing as bad. But I think a lot of people are being faced with a moral compass on how bad do you really want to win? How how important is this to you? And if the and if the fact is that to me, having my team win, experiencing success, being happy, seeing a fan base happy, seeing um, my my society nurture and being happy based upon the fact that we have these owners, then that's fine by me. You know, more power to you. I don't think I don't think that's wrong. I don't think that's something that needs to be chastised or viewed as as a wrong way of viewing the world. But I I just as I said to I have friends that are Newcastle fans. I have friends that are Manchester City fans. I obviously have fa- fan, uh, friends that are Manchester United fans. I say as long as you as long as you ask yourselves the questions, as long as you make yourself uh in, informed by what you're supporting the same way with the world cup same with the world cup people that wanted to boycott the world cup now watch the world cup that's fine you you're not a bad person for watching the world cup the only thing i said and i and i watched and i watched more of the world cup than i was planning to only thing that i said to myself and to everyone was just be informed of what you, what you're watching what you're supporting what, what what's behind what you're seeing that's the only thing and that's the only thing that i i'd um tell people you know not, not not order people but at least encourage people i should say to to do if it becomes a, a qatar state ownership of manchester united doesn't make you a bad person to be a manchester united fan you're not a bad person of being a newcastle fan or man city fan or psg fan not at all but you should be informed of what what it is that you are supporting you should be informed by that already with the Glazer family as well. You should be informed with Jim Radcliffe, regardless of what it is. You should be informed. And, and if you still want to support it, more power to you. 
more power to anyone but I, be be aware that's the only thing that i'd say yeah and and it became obvious uh, even though many people knew already but it became obvious last february that Rumor Bamovich was an extremely controversial owner as well. To, exactly. To, yeah, and and the, and like you mentioned, the visit Rwanda. There's a lot. You could probably pick out every club in the Premier League probably has immoral sponsors. I mean, even earlier this season, uh, Fulham had to drop a sponsor because the company didn't even exist. You know, <laughs> so yeah. there's lots of um, dodgy things going on uh, uh, at every club probably. Um, so that's unfortunate, and but you know it, this is a good example. If the UK government are doing have trade deals with the with these dictatorships in Saudi Arabia, uh, for example, why should why do the football fans have to be expected to have a moral compass if their own government doesn't? You know, so uh, no, it's not fair. Good point. Good point. Yeah, yeah. Good point. And and, I'll, and just to pinpoint that as well. There should be a fit and proper test there that should have a, a human rights record sort of thing in. And I don't think I don't think it does at this moment in time. I was speaking to Amnesty about this yesterday. And I believe they have sort of a uh I believe they have a what is it? When once you go through the test, obviously they check your records if you basically have you have any sex crimes against minors, for example, and all that sort of stuff they have, you know, all those um horrible things. But 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 I suppose the guy that I spoke to said you could obviously um, you could be a war criminal. You could be doing or, or breaching human rights records. Uh, but as long as you didn't have sex with minors, you'd be fine. It, it, it was something along those lines. It's just if you view if you view those the, the things that basically are in. I haven't read the fit and proper test. So I'm just taking his word for it. Um, but I, I just know that there's a lack of section for those sorts of things and and in a way in a way that's the that's the fact or that's the the, the part of it because i don't think the premier league ever expected for states to try and own their sides i think that having private businessmen having hedge funds having investors that's you know that's normal but having states having head of states owning football clubs to to run them in england run them in into european competition don't think anyone expected that to happen and and I kind of understand that, but then, but then again, you kind of have to develop with the times, don't you? And I don't think that perhaps those um, those criteria has been met by any stretch of the imagination. And even the previous owner of Manchester City, Taxin Shinawatra. I mean, yeah, <laughs> where do we one. start with that one? <laughs> There's another one. You know, just talk about using state funds in order to to bankroll your uh, bankroll your team. That was a yeah, that was an exciting one as well. The, the, I just came into my head there. There was an interesting uh, debate between Game Balagay and G- Jamie Carragher. Uh, I, I saw that one. I saw that one. I thought. I think I was on the side of Carragher in this one because when you know when Real Madrid were poaching the best players from the Premier League, um, Game Balagay wasn't talking about you know uh, the, the Liga funding the, the Premier League back then. Now he wants Premier League clubs to help fund the Liga club, clubs. It seems. Um, I don't agree with that one. Uh, I'm not quite sure where he was coming from there. Um, have you any idea how you can justify that? No, I think that basically he wanted uh, fair and common ground for every team. And obviously with all the money being in England, maybe there should be uh, money shared to, to the rest of Europe. I'm not necessarily in agreement with that, but but I think that uh, what is what is a... 
a big topic in Spain, and it's really big as well as uh, state-owned clubs, you know, clubs that are owned by states and, and how um, the English game has, not just the English game, but also you have, you know, Paris Saint-Germain, for example, they pump money from states into clubs in order to, um, to win football matches and obviously to make those leagues and those uh, economies more profitable than in Spain because you have to remember that there was a lot of football tourism to Spain uh, a couple of years ago because obviously you had Messi, you had Ronaldo and, you know, Atletico Madrid were doing so well. But now you, you start seeing the best players in the world not playing for Real Madrid and Barcelona going elsewhere. You know, you have Paris Saint-Germain with Mbappé and Messi and, and Neymar, which were uh, two, two out of those three were obviously big stars in Spain. And, and the third one was supposed to be the next big star in Spain. Um, Erling Haaland, for example, went to Manchester City as opposed to going to either Real Madrid or Barcelona, which would have been the norm previously. So I think that the fact is in Spain, they're, they're looking at, at this in a way in which these clubs are being profitable because they're being given money directly from rich oil states. And obviously with those teams and the competition being better, the TV money becomes better. The deals become better. Uh, big brands want to have their, their name all blazoned over the Premier League logo. Whereas in Spain and in La Liga, it's not the same as it used to be. And obviously uh, with the TV deals and the TV rights deal being a little bit different structured in Spain. And now you also you have the CVC agreement, which uh, kind of has sold off the audiovisual rights to uh, 17 out of the 20 clubs, or is it, or is it 18? No, 17. Uh, Athletic Club Barcelona and Real Madrid said no to the CVC agreement. Um, it just it just shows that there's a big difference between rich and poor in Spain, and it's a big difference between rich in England and rich in Spain, which I don't think that everyone in uh, in Spanish football, especially those sitting at the top, are um, are too happy about. Which is why they want to see the introduction of the European Super League, and they've come back with uh, revised proposals for that one. But that would don't... be that would be the clubs. That's very different to different, or uh, it, it's important mm-hmm. to point out the difference. The league, La Liga, are they hate the Super League idea? They hate yeah. it with a passion. Yeah, the, yeah, the the Liga chairman, he's a very passionate um, uh, protester against the Super League. Yeah, Javier Tebas, he absolutely yeah. hates the Super League, and he, whenever the Super League is being mentioned, he has a whole thread on Twitter on why it's a bad idea and he has clubs make videos about why it's a bad idea and all the clubs are involved with it with the exception of Barcelona and Real Madrid <laughs> every single time so it's um it's a uh, Spanish football is is a, is a bucket of fun I absolutely love it because now you obviously also have a big case in Spain now with with uh, Barcelona having paid a uh, vice president for the, the technical department, I guess, of, of, uh, of the referees for a number of years. So, and what did they actually pay him for? Was it consultation? Was it to give Barcelona leniency in when they were choosing referees? No one seems to know. So it's, um, Spain is, 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 is a lot of fun. If you don't follow yeah, La Liga, please do. <laughs> that's very controversial. Um, that one point, uh, five million euro payment that was given to a uh, vice chairman of the referees association by Barcelona. That's very yep. dodgy. Yeah, and 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 they say it was due to consultation that he was being consulted on, you know, how to act around referees and basically <laughs> oh, what, re- re- what referees does this and what referees does that. And it, it was a, 
I mean, it, it's difficult to prove. That's the thing. But and and obviously, um, the league has, has said that they're not going to punish Barcelona because it's out of the. It's it's been so long since it happened, and there's no proof that it actually gave Barcelona any any form of advantages. But what they've said is that obviously this might become a criminal case because there might be corruption involved here, and they've said that if if this goes to court. Then obviously La Liga have to have to act accordingly. But considering this is that many years ago, because the last payment was dated in 2018, and obviously that was the former board. That's to be remembered as well. That was a different board than the one that is now. Obviously, the current Barcelona board is Joan Laporta and so forth. In 2018, it would have been Bartomeu, who was the former president, and 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 obviously was incredibly controversial for the things that he did. Um, but until this becomes a criminal case and whatever the criminal whatever comes of the criminal case. La Liga stated that they're not going to do anything more. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that develops. And obviously, there's a case against Manchester City by the Premier League. It's yeah. just it's happening all over the place at the moment. All over the place. Um, although I think I just think it's absurd that Game Balaga thinks that the Premier League should give some of their funds away to other clubs in Europe because when Real Madrid and Barcelona were dominating European competitions, he wasn't saying that they should that the Liga should give their their money away to and help the other leagues become more competitive. So. I think he's obviously a bit uh, annoyed that, um, like you, like you said, the best players in Europe are not going to the the League of Giants as not as much as they, they used to. Anyway, and the best players in the world are now playing elsewhere. Um, that seems to be wh- why he holds that opinion. And Jimmy Carragher, in my opinion, was rightfully calling him out on that. Um, so it was interesting to be it nonetheless. Um, agree. Yeah. I agree. There's been so much going on. Um, it, on the fields and off the fields and so much to be resolved. I mean, we haven't even talked about Juve. <laughs> oh, no. That's a big story as well. Be, I mentioned him when I mentioned Dusan Vlaovic. You can, you can place your, you can pin your hat <laughs> yeah. on that one. I did, I did mention them. You did indeed. Uh, so the conversation has went on for an hour and 13 minutes, a lot longer than I anticipated, but uh, thank you for your time, Jonas. No, all good, all good, fun. Uh, apologies for being a little bit late. I hope that the people that are uh, listening in on this has uh, had a had a fun listen, and I guess that I kind of poured my heart out a bit about fan about fandom. So I hope that people uh, they don't necessarily uh, slaughter me in my Twitter mentions uh, in the coming couple of days. It'll be interesting to follow, regardless. I mean, uh, I think I think that I, I just wanted to again underline the point that. Whether you're for Qatari ownership, whether you're not, whether you're for Jim Ratcliffe, whether you're not, I don't think that it makes you a, a bad fan or a good fan one way or another, just to pinpoint that. Yeah, everybody's entitled to their opinion, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Okay, Jonas, I'll, I'll have you on again sometime. See you later. Yeah, see you later. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Thank you.